welcome to episode 15 of Writers' Festival Radio, Letting Go of Anxiety. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Writers' Festival Radio. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Today, we'll be presenting a conversation between Olivia Robinson and Tara Henley. Olivia, a journalist and producer with CBC, was Rabble.ca's Jack Layton Journalism for Change Fellow in 2019 and a recipient of the Joan Donaldson CBC News Scholarship. In 2016, journalist Tara Henley was at the top of her game working in Canadian media. She had traveled the world interviewing authors and community leaders, politicians and celebrities, but when she started getting chest pains at her desk in the newsroom, none of that seemed to matter. Anxiety forced her to step off the media treadmill and examine her life and the stressful 21st century world around her. Her remarkable book, Lean Out, explores the many reasons more and more of us are rejecting consumerism and searching for meaningful connection in this era of extreme isolation and loneliness. Here's a quick taste of the writing, followed by Olivia Robinson's conversation with Tara Henley. I had, it must be said, not expected to arrive at this conclusion. I had assumed my journey to find a saner life would involve some combination of life hacks like meditation, sleep, healthy eating, and digital detoxes, and would likely culminate in building an off-grid tiny house on some sliver of land in rural BC, where I'd work 20 hours a week writing freelance articles with what Wi-Fi connection, I'm not sure, and spend the rest of my time growing food, reading, hosting potlucks, and walking a chocolate lab. Not so much, it turned out. For one, I wasn't too interested in living without running water or electricity. I had proven pretty resistant to even giving up lipstick. For two, as an extrovert with unmet social needs and a huge appetite for intellectual stimulation, I was hardly the ideal candidate for living alone in the woods. Finally, freelance writing in this day and age was unlikely to support the lab, let alone me. And who had the cash to build a cabin or buy land in an astronomically expensive region? No, connecting the dots on the epidemic of overwork and anxiety had not led me to unplug from society, leaving a trail of helpful tips for readers in my wake. It had instead led me here to the most pressing issue of our time, economic inequality. Thank you so much uh, for joining me to talk about uh, your book. I absolutely loved it. I read it in almost one sitting. And the only reason I couldn't finish it in one sitting was because I had to start work. So (laughs) it was kind of an interesting (laughs) contrast of of reading it and being like, oh, I have all these realizations about work and then, you know, having to jump into work. But it's such an interesting blend of like travel narrative, memoir, um, and then journalistic investigation. like when when did you have that moment of okay this this has to be a book there's there's something here that I want to write about um, at length. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing this and it's great to get to talk. Um, I think 
the moment was when I moved back to Vancouver from Toronto. So for listeners, the, the basic background is I had been working in Toronto, working in newsrooms at sort of a breakneck pace for many years. And I wanted to try and carve out a little bit more time and space to have a personal life. And so I moved back to Vancouver thinking that, you know, it was a lotus land that I would, you know, be able to work nine to five maybe and go for hikes on the weekend. I had this fantasy of what that would look like. And I arrived in Vancouver to a very extreme housing crisis. And so my newsroom there was kind of an overdrive. I found it very difficult to find a place to live. It took me seven weeks. Um, And so I felt at that time that there were things that were not being said that I felt needed to be said. Um, And so that first chapter about Vancouver, I just started writing it because I felt like there were things almost like an emperor's no clothes moment that someone had to say some of these things. And then from there, um, I realized that it was a larger book because so many of the conversations that I was having with people, people really related to these subjects. And it just, it just felt like there was space for a much bigger book. And of course, the process of that is that I was off. I had had chest pains in the newsroom. I, I had to take a medical leave, which was very difficult. I, you know, I'm, I'm very driven. It was so hard to slow down. But then as I took time off, the investigation really took a life of its own and, and led me all over the world and, and ended up being the book. And and you described that the moment of, of chest pain and, and being in the newsroom and like at, at the time, like, you know, in the moment where you think, oh, this is just adrenaline, this is just newsroom life, like this is just, you know, deadlines coming up and or at what point were you like, no, this is something more serious, like I need to have a think and, you know, do something about it. It had been going on for a while, um, and I I was getting increasingly more concerned about it. I was starting to have medical appointments, but the actual moment is kind of hilarious. So we, we were doing a segment um, on burnout, and I was doing that story, and I was speaking to an executive coach about... Um, trying to get an expert on how you handle that. And he was talking about what he was seeing in his clients all over the world. And I, I had one of those moments as I'm sitting at the desk, kind of hunched over my phone. And I, I, at that point, to control the chest pains, I had to kind of press on my chest. To, <laughs> so I'm talking to this guy, talking about his client's kind of moment of clarity about their own overwork and burnout. And holding my chest, trying to control chest pains. Like it was comical. I mean, it would be comical if it wasn't serious. Right. So I knew, uh, and my doctors had been saying for some time I needed to take time off. And, um, so I knew that day that I was going to have to take their advice and take a medical leave. It just was very difficult for me to actually do it. So of course I filed my stories before I left the newsroom. <laughs> And and when when you made that change and when you you know you got you got to Vancouver and you described being like in this apartment that you got and there are fruit fruit flies you know flying around and you kind of have this like I can picture it being in like an apartment like that like did you have any moments of like oh gosh what have I done you know did I make the right choice you know like or did you were you like nope I'm I've committed to this this is what you know I, I have to stick stick to the plan. Yes, um, absolutely. I had moments of what have I done. Uh, so the, the chronology is I, I left Toronto. I was staying in this sublet for two months. Um, the sublet was terrible um, and expensive. And 
basically just kind of unlivable. Um, and in those two months, that's when the chest pain started. And then I moved into my own apartment, which, which was a lovely apartment. Uh, and during that time is when I had to take the time off. And it was, um, it was so disorienting. I mean, I had spent my entire adult life pushing in my career and I was definitely used to the excitement and the adrenaline. It was definitely a big part of my identity. Um, I loved my, and still love my colleagues so much. I mean, you know, there's that camaraderie in the newsroom and that kind of gallows humor and everything that goes with uh, what we do. And so to suddenly find myself alone, not identified with my profession, uh, definitely financially incredibly unstable and uh, really reevaluating everything. It was, was very disorienting. And I, I think something that a lot of people are going through now um, with the pandemic that so many of us have been forced to, to pause and to reevaluate and, and not under ideal circumstances at all. So... I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because obviously it's something that's top of mind for everybody right now. And I feel like it really has exacerbated so many people's financial, you know, limits or, you know, even personal limits of, of what they can do in sort of this, you know, crazy time. Um, it, what have you sort of noticed in, in, I guess, the six plus months now that we've been, been in, in sort of lockdown pandemic mode of those sort of social inequalities that you kind of get at, at, at your book and kind of about the housing market and um, job precariousness and that kind of thing? Yes. Um, so I would say, I mean, I look at things from an economic lens and, but, um, you know, with the caveat that I, I think we all have to recognize that income inequality disproportionately impacts racialized populations. So I will just say that. Um, I think, I think that the pandemic has really, revealed a lot of the problems that were happening and developing for a really long time before that. So one of the things I write a lot about in the book is income inequality and how the gap between the you know rich and everybody else in this country and especially in the States has, has been growing for some time and that we, we don't necessarily know what the impacts of that are on society without looking at the data. But I did look at the data in the book and um, it was really astonishing to see that, you know, there's there's teams in Britain that have done really good research on this. And when the gap between the rich and the poor grows in a society, that every social index plummets. And so everything from violence to um, illiteracy to teen pregnancies, like every way of measuring the health of a society plummets. And so I think um, all of these problems were brewing to begin with. And uh, we've been ignoring the issue of income inequality for a very long time. And that the pandemic just threw that all into sharp focus. The issue of precarious work, for example, um, is very, very clearly um, causing a lot of problems for society um, during the pandemic because you have precarious workers who are forced to go to work um, regardless of what their health status is, or are forced to work multiple jobs and going, you know, from one long-term care to home to another. So all of these um, issues that that I was researching for the book have really been highlighted um, during the pandemic, and I, I think we're at a turning point as a culture and as a society right now. And um, in terms of 
you know, people's housing situations, that's certainly coming to light. You know, I know you write about in the book, you know, people who, you know, wanted to live right downtown Toronto, for example, in like a one bedroom condo, because well, one, maybe that's all they, you know, could afford, but also it's close to work, it's close to, you know, friends, restaurants, but now suddenly everything's been upended. And those, you know, communities that used to seek out aren't, aren't there anymore, or don't, they're not in the same way. Um, do you think that this could be a big shift for sort of the kind of housing model that we've been used to or do you think it's going to kind of make things worse for those people that like the have and have nots I guess in terms of mm. stable housing yes I'm 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 very concerned that it's making things much worse um so at the end of the book I moved back to Toronto and um I had a very similar and in some ways much worse experience trying to find housing in Toronto um you know and I I just found it quite astonishing that that it was that difficult to find a place um, and that the apartments were as expensive as they are and that it took me as long as it did to find a place and that the standards for housing seem to be going down and down. And during the pandemic, we, we've seen housing prices in Toronto skyrocket, which doesn't make sense because so many people are out of work. So that decoupling of income and housing costs is very, very troubling. Um, so I think things are getting worse. And I think, um, you know, doing the stories that I do every day, I do, I do, am aware of people facing evictions and running out of money. And it's, it's very, very concerning right now. Yeah. With um, sort of the research in, in your book, you talk to a lot of very interesting people and kind of look at people who have sort of issued traditional model like the moneyless man uh, Mr. Money Mustache you know the minimalists I'm curious as to sort of you know did, were you approaching any of them thinking like oh my gosh this is this can't be real and just totally had your mind blown or changed or you know how, how did you kind of approach those people who had kind of these radical views on on money and sort of um capitalistic kind of ventures and that type of thing a combination of both. Um, I was very open to new ideas at this point in my life, as I think anyone who's in a crisis is. Um, I, I definitely had my mind blown by all of these people that I spoke to. I'm still a journalist, so I'm still very uh, skeptical of everything all the time. Um, and so it was sort of a combination of that. And I, I think the takeaway for me is that I think these models of doing things in an alternative way are super important. Like, so let's take the moneyless man in Ireland, for example. Um, someone who I really respect and admire, who's a really quite a spectacular writer. Um, so he, I had been reading about him for years and my sister-in-law is Irish. And at that time we were living in Dublin and with my brother. And so I was in Ireland visiting and we wanted to go and find the moneyless man. So he had lived for three years without money at all. Um, and then had lived a couple of years without technology. And he had written about it in the Guardian, writing out by hand his columns and mailing them in. <laughs> <laughs> so he was living, um, on this property in rural Ireland, but that was very difficult to find. Uh, so we just went on this adventure and um, went door knocking and found him and spent the day with him. And uh, it was such an incredible interview. And he is a remarkable human being. And so I, the, what I came away from that day thinking is um, these models are very important. It's really important to see that there are other ways of doing things. 
I am not going to live <laughs> in a rural farmhouse in Ireland without running water or electricity or, you know, <laughs> Wi-Fi or lipstick or I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. Um, but the value of that model is super profound. And, and I think that what, what we all kind of have to think about going forward is that these problems are not solvable on an individual level. And for the last 30 or 40 years, um, our dominant culture has taught us over and over and over again to look at everything through an individualistic lens. If I have a problem, and this is certainly the journey I went on the book, like I have a problem, my problem is anxiety, how do I solve my problem? And that just doesn't work. Um, because our problems are collective problems and we are all interconnected. And part of the problem that we're all living with right now is isolation from each other. And so these solutions, um, whatever solutions we find to the big issues of our age, climate change, income inequality, racial injustice, these things are all gonna take all of us coming together and finding a consensus and organizing our society differently. It is not going to come from me meditating more or reading more books or, you know, I wish that it did. I certainly tried that, but that's, I don't think that's going to do it. And you, you bring up a good point because I think it was in another interview, you said, you know, how you, you don't like you get the term like self-help books because that kind of puts it on an individualistic level that it's like, oh, it's my problem. I need to do change you know, to do something to change it for myself, when in fact, there's all these external factors that as a society, we're all grappling with. Yes, absolutely. And I, I have come, my views on self-help have really evolved, um, writing this book and talking to people about it. I think in the beginning, I mean, I grew up on the West Coast, that is self-help central. <laughs> like, I was <laughs> in those ideas. Um, and I also pursued a lot of those ideas in kind of trying to address my own distress. Um, and I went from thinking, oh, maybe there's some great tools here to maybe these tools are beneficial, but don't solve it to now thinking that those tools are actually destructive because it, um, it's a distraction from what's actually happening in our society. And that, um, you know, mental health, anxiety, depression, all of these things, these are collective issues. And that what's really good for our mental health is community, is relationships, is interconnection. And um, the self-help model encourages us to focus on our own distress. And the relief that I have gotten from focusing on other people's distress, <laughs> you know, has been profound. Hmm. I'm curious as to how, like you talk about food a lot in the book, um, kind of, you have this beautiful passage where you're talking about your nan's cooking and I wrote it down because I just, I was like salivating, kind of thinking about it, like her roasts were tender and juicy, her Yorkshire pudding melted in your mouth, like this kind of beautiful kind of connection with food. Um, but then I think it's a little bit uh, earlier in the book, you talk about sort of orthorexia and this kind of obsession with healthy eating and how that that's, that is something that's kind of used in a lot of self-help kind of, you know, industries, you know, if you eat in a certain way, you know, you'll all of a sudden feel better or, and I'm just kind of curious as to your relationship with food and how that evolved over the course of this journey um, that, that, that you took in the book. Mm, yeah. So I love talking about food. So thank you for <laughs> Um, 
I think, you know, I have a lot of friends who are GPs, who are doctors, and they talk to me about, you know, people coming in with the idea that diet and wellness can somehow be this magic bullet, that it can solve all your problems in one shot. And I certainly suffered under that illusion myself. You know, as you know from the book, I've had enough health problems to um, have had to seek out some alternative solutions. And so I've tried every diet that is out mm-hmm. there. I've, I've tried being vegan. I've, I've, I've tried um, no sugar. I've tried no dairy. I've tried no caffeine. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. And it's, it's actually very boring, right? That side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to find a way to think about food that is I mean, food is medicine, right? I, I mean, I, I still believe in eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, and, but food is not just medicine. Food is also nourishment, it's enjoyment, it's community. And the um, kind of obsessive way of thinking about food as if, as if it can solve all our problems is not the way to... I think it's a, it's a similar sort of thing to self-help thing. It's like putting it in its proper place. And I think food is very powerful for, for community building. I think there's something very powerful about sharing food with people. And obviously in the pandemic, we can't do that right now. We're mm-hmm. missing that so much. So yeah, I think the food conversation is, is about balance. It's, a, it's, about, um, it's about balance, mm-hmm. but not balance in the sense of, you know, um, as if food doesn't make any difference, as if I'm mm-hmm. going to now go out and eat McDonald's every day, mm-hmm. you know, just balance as in, I'm, I'm not going to um, deprive myself or my, my guests in my home mm-hmm. of a beautiful meal. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I, I love what you just said about kind of community and food. Cause that's right. That is something that's like missing, you know, right now, like we can't, you know, we can't go out and kind of share a big meal with friends outside our household we you know especially approaching on on thanksgiving at the time of recording this like things are very much up in the air um but in terms of this this sense of community and i know you talk about it a lot in in your book and like our tribe and how that really kind of helps us and and fosters us and 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 helps us kind of get through these these tough points i wonder if you could speak to some of the communities that you found over the course of your journey that really you leaned on during those tough times for sure. And I will say, um, I think it's important to make the distinction between tribe and tribalism. So, and, you know, Sebastian Younger, who wrote the book Tribe, who I, um, I just have so much respect for and who I sat down with um, for this book, he, his book, uh, he argues, he was looking at post-traumatic stress disorder and, among soldiers, and he himself had come back from deployment covering um, Afghanistan and had, you know, suffered a bit with that himself. And his basic thesis is that... Um, that post-traumatic stress is not necessarily just about frontline combat. It's about the society that you return home to. So you have these soldiers who have um, spent this incredibly emotionally intense time with each other in war in which they sleep next to each other, fight next to each other, share meals, would do anything to protect their fellow soldier, even if they might not like them as a person. And that that way of living is so emotionally gratifying that it's really difficult to give up when you come home and you come home to a fractured society, you, you know, you don't feel as useful and meaningful and purposeful. You might sleep by yourself at night or with one other person. It's, it's, it's a totally different way of living. And so his view of tribe, very, very importantly, includes everyone around you. And so if I'm looking at tribe, like 
how can I find people who think the same way as I think about the world? That's not the view. The view is who's in my neighborhood? How do I get to know the vast kind of diversity of people that live in my neighborhood and build bonds across all of those divisions. So that's, that's the view. That's the, that's the goal. And I, I had some pretty powerful experiences with that because I did focus on my own neighborhood. Um, I became a um, organizer for a listserv uh, of cyclists and I met people who mostly all lived in my neighborhood, but were from all around the world. And we went on these incredible adventures and started having potlucks. And these have become really close friends um, through that extended network. And another experience I had was I started volunteering at um, an alternative school in my own neighborhood. And these kids absolutely were are remarkable human beings and have had some pretty difficult challenges that they're working with. Um, but you know, I one of the tasks that I had uh, with the class was to sit down with each of them and record their stories, and then mm-hmm. we would transcribe it and they would craft it into a narrative. And it was very, very special, and I was uh, really blown away by these kids. And they were again my neighbors. It just took me going out and discovering. Um, who was living all around me. And have you found during the pandemic that that has been harder or easier to kind of have that group of people or has that evolved over the the course of the past few months um, in in getting that kind of group together or finding new creative ways to sort of find, find that group or find different people that could help each other out? So when I arrived in Toronto, um, I was staying with friends who have a house and uh, they also had two other friends staying with them. And in the basement of their house, they have a family who have moved here from El Salvador. So when the pandemic hit, I was looking for an apartment and I ended up staying with my friends for, gosh, I think it was seven or eight months. And that was just an incredible experience. Um, There were two dogs. uh, The family in the basement had a baby during the pandemic. So there's this incredible newborn little boy in all of our lives. Um, And I found that the lessons from the book uh, were really playing out in front of of my eyes because um, to have dealt with anxiety that I have dealt with to the point where I was getting chest pains. Um, Obviously that's extreme anxiety. And yet here I am, I've just moved back to Toronto. I'm back in the newsroom. I'm covering the pandemic. Uh, And and you'll be aware of this. Like I am not a disaster reporter. Some of this reporting um, as a producer has been some of the toughest stories I've had to cover in my entire life. And yet that communal living situation buffered so much of the stress and I have not had extreme anxiety during that time. Um, so that was really remarkable. I am now, I have my own apartment now and I am living at home and working at home and reporting on the second wave. And, and it's difficult. I won't, I won't sugarcoat it. It's difficult. And I think we are social beings. We, we, we need each other so much. Um, but again, that goes back to the vision of the society that we take moving forward. You know, I feel very, um, very much invested in the idea of pluralism and the idea of all of us being individuals, but coming together and joining together across differences. And I have seen very powerful examples of that during the pandemic as well, you know, um, of people just doing really remarkable things for people in their own neighborhoods who were strangers to them six months ago. Um, so it is, it is like, honestly, the best of times and the worst of times, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, 
yeah, the strange era we're living in. Like, I feel like we we talk a lot about like in the after times or the before times, but we're kind of in the middle of everything now and so much can change and so much can happen. But are you, I guess, do you feel optimistic that some good could come out of like this, you know, horrible, horrible pandemic, but like having a lot of people thinking inwardly about like, okay, how can we make things for the better? We've seen all these cracks kind of appear in society, which have just gotten worse with the pandemic. Like, how do you feel sort of going into this next chapter? I feel we're at a turning point. Um, I feel that what is required of all of us in this moment is to, um, to really open our minds to other people's experiences and to, um, to proceed with kind of a level of radical empathy for our neighbors and to focus on coming together as opposed to our differences. And I don't, I don't know where this is all going to go. Um, I think we're at a very um, precarious point in human history. And, um, and I, I, what gives me optimism is disasters of the past. You know, looking at um, the Blitz, for example, and my gra- which my grandmother lived through. Um, and to see the human capacity in really grave circumstances to, to kind of bring out the most generous of the human spirit and to really focus on what other people are going through and how we can really, I mean, it comes down, this is going to sound corny, but it comes down to love really like, and in times of grave disaster, that moments of human kindness make a massive difference. And so if we are all able to marshal that in ourselves and give that to our neighbors, um, you know, across economic circumstances, across race, across political differences, that I think that that is possible and I think it is necessary. And I, I hope that's the direction that we go. And in, you know, amid all of that, amid the pandemic, you know, everyone's still trying to work. Everyone's just trying to get by day by day and, and still, you know, bring in income to their families and, and, and their homes. Um, with, with the kind of work-life balance shift that we've sort of had, you know, people's, as we were sort of talking about before, like people's homes are now their offices, you know, um, does it, does it make you think about how that will transform like that work-life balance? Do you think it's going to get better or worse? I know in the book, you talk about sort of your love-hate relationship with the internet, you know, how it, <laughs> we're tethered to our phones all, all the time. And, and especially with being journalists too, like you kind of can't look away, um, you know, especially in the middle of a, amidst a, a global pandemic. So what are your thoughts on sort of how we strike that balance, especially when, you know, home where we eat, sleep, play, it's all the same place now. Mm. I, you know, I think about this all the time. It's such a fabulous question, like on a daily basis. Um, and I don't have any answers. The only answer that I've come up with is about social media. I think that in the moment we're in right now, social media, which has its pros and cons to it, I think social media has become excessively destructive and polarizing. And um, so for me, on an individual level, I am choosing to spend way, way less time on social media. Um, But in terms of the idea that we all need to come up with collective solutions to all of these problems, I don't know what that collective solution is right now. And I, I think, I think we're all, 
I think we're all in survival mode right now. Mm-hmm. And um, again, coming back to human connection, I think the best antidote to social media is actual conversation. <laughs> no, really, like, you know, and I, so I, I draw on that a lot. Um, uh, and especially, you know, I think one of the things that I think is very special for us is that we do have that camaraderie in the newsroom. And I'm putting newsroom in quotes right now because most of us are at home, but mm-hmm. that, um, that that is a huge buffer, I think, as well. Um, so... I, back to human connection for sure. And I think we're in a moment of huge uncertainty. Um, and so I don't, don't necessarily have any answers on all of that. And as a, as a fellow journalist, like I'm, I, I want to hear your thoughts on sort of that, especially in journalism in this, you know, world where nothing, there's all, there's always news. There's never not news. There's always something happening. And you, you write in the book about, you know, having to think about, work-life balance and and you you, ha- you talk about this experience of going for a job interview and that question of like oh work-life balance or there was something along those lines and then you actually got a I think it was a, a rejection letter saying you know we hope you we hope you get what you're looking for yeah. or something like that it's pretty clear isn't it <laughs> and it just made me think like you know why can't we voice that especially you know in in, in journalism world to say like this is you know this is too much or we're trying to strike a balance like now that you're back in that newsroom life how do you handle that how do you find that balance have you found it yet um I mean I do a lot of practical things like I don't have uh email on my phone for work and I don't check work email when I'm not working um but I'm certainly far from any kind of work-life balance I I listen to the news all the time I do a ton of reading in my spare time I mean uh, I certainly haven't come up with any definitive answers on that, but I will say, um, and I, I think, I think it's important to, to say the thing, right? Like I, as you can probably tell from the book, I'm not very good at not saying the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, um, so I'm very honest and upfront in all areas of my life about, um, you know, the need for well-being and um, my attempts to establish that. And I, I found that message very well received across um, across the workroom and like everywhere. I found that, I think everyone uh, understands that as, and is working on some level for the same thing. So I do think we're all in it together. And I also, um, I also think that, um, you know, again, back to the technology, that the technology is extremely addictive and um, that there needs to be some bigger sort of structural thing. This is way bigger than all of us as individuals. And, uh, you know, I would like to see some attempts as a society to come to terms with that because I don't necessarily have the power to stay off Twitter all the time. I just don't. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone can. (laughs) And like, it's and that, too compelling sometimes. <laughs> it's true. It, and it has that addictive quality. Like it, I just, it, and you can see why some people, and you, you mentioned this in the book, like why people are like, that's it. I'm going to move out to the country and start farming, or I'm going to go and be totally off the grid. Like people, you have these extreme almost yes. reactions to try and cope with it, but there's no, it's either you're all in or you're like, nope, that's it. Exactly. Say goodbye to that life. Exactly. And I absolutely, and what I'm trying to do is reject that premise and stay in the game and stay uh, productive and useful to society and stay well. Um, 
and you know, it's, it's, it's an evolving process. And I, of course, I wanted to, to just mention about sort of the, the title of your book, Lean Out, being, of course, in direct opposition to Cheryl Sandberg's um, Lean In. Um, when, when you, like, read it or had heard about that, like, her book and that whole concept of, like, okay, women, you need to just throw yourself into work, you know, check your Blackberry as soon as you've given birth, you know, that type of thing. Like, when you heard about it, were you like, okay, this is not, this is not the way it should be, especially for, for women who, you know, have to, you know, work 10 times harder to to get to that same level of, of success um, as men or, or did it kind of come to you later that you were like, ah, let's, well, let's push back against this a little bit. <laughs> um, no, I found it instantly exasperating. <laughs> I found it <laughs> exasperating and completely out of touch with working women's lives. Um, you know, I know, I know a lot of people found it inspiring. And so I certainly don't, um, negate that it had that kind of effect. But for me, I just, I read it at a time when I was totally exhausted and working very long hours. And I, at that time was single and had no children. I still have no children, but I was thinking about my friends who were on a similar career trajectory as I was and who were coming home to um, demands in the home from husbands and from children and from pets. And I just, the idea that the solution to any of this is for us all to work harder is just preposterous. People are stretched so thin as it is. And again, it comes back to that idea of self-help, like the idea that women's equality can be addressed on an individual level with women just being more ambitious is is absurd. Mm -hmm. And also it negates a different kind of ambition. I mean, um, when you look at the way our society functions, women are, I mean, not all women and some men are obviously the exception, but the way that the society works is for the most part, women are the glue that holds society together. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have a friend who is sick, um, I'm going to make a meal and take that over to her house. You know, we're, we, we are the ones doing that work and that work is actually very powerful and important work. And, um, that is a kind of ambition as well. And so I just found the whole phenomenon, like kind of comical. And, um, I think the backlash was very much warranted. Mm-hmm. I think I feel like I I kind of want to adopt the same like lean out like just you know we've been hearing lean lean in for too many years I feel like it's time to to lean out and I feel like your your book does such an amazing job about you know getting at that you know um, at at the end of the book there's almost like this call to action you know we as a collective society where do we where do we go from from here where do you think that is mm, and I think this moment that we're in right now is. Um, is a moment for us all to take stock and to start thinking about that. And I I think in the beginning, I think it's a perspective shift. I think it's um, moving from the idea of individualism, of how do I address the issues in my own life, to the idea of collectivism. How do I make things better, not just for myself, but for everybody else? And um, the idea that we talked about earlier of of getting offline and getting in person. Um, And of course, that's a difficult thing to do during the pandemic, but the spirit of it is not difficult to do. The spirit of it is um, curiosity about other people. What are other people's lives like? What are they going through? How can I improve 
the material conditions of somebody else's life, even a small way. Um, and then the third thing is, is moving from ideology to, to action, again, to this idea. And I've, of course, my view is very um, class-based. It's very economic. It's very pragmatic. It's about how do we improve the material conditions of other people's lives. So I'm, I'm taking a look at things like, you know, the housing crisis and the opioid crisis and, um, you know, whether, and I, I don't know, but whether there should be should be a wealth tax in this country. Like what are the ways of improving people's lives on a very tangible level? And to me, that's, that's where the focus should be right now. Um, and, and really again on human kindness that, you know, our neighbors are some of us having a very difficult time. And sometimes that's about loneliness and isolation. And sometimes that's about poverty. There's a million different things people are struggling with right now. And to try to just cut each other a bit of a break and to try to um, hear other people's stories and really listen to other people's stories and really try to grapple with what other people are going through right now. To me, that's the way forward. Um, and that's very much in line with our profession and what we do. We, our job is to listen. Our job is to try to tell those stories to a, to a bigger audience. And I think there is great power in that. And it, you know, at least I, I hope there is. That's what is getting me out of bed every morning right now. I love that. <laughs> that. That very much will inspire me as I head into to work later today. <laughs> that was CBC's Olivia Robinson in conversation with Tara Henley about her acclaimed bestseller, Lean Out, a meditation on the madness of modern life. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, but I'm sure there's an independent bookstore near wherever you're listening to this podcast who would be more than happy to sell you one, two, three, or more copies of Lean Out. We hope you'll join us again on Friday for Imagining Worlds Part 1, featuring David A. Robertson and Derek Kunskin, and Imagining Worlds Part 2, featuring Lauren Bucus and M.R. Carey. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.